1909. British Royal Navy officer and explorer, Captain Robert Falcon Scott, receives word that Ernest Shackleton's Nimrod expedition has narrowly missed being the first to reach the South Pole. He was turned away less than 100 miles from the coveted destination. To get that close, he had to set up a base in McMurdo Sound. Captain Scott was incensed. He had, on the Discovery Expedition just a few years earlier, claimed the McMurdo Sound as his own field of work, and Shackleton's use of the area was in breach of an understanding the two men had reached. And Scott knew other teams were gearing up, one from Japan, an Australasian team, and most concerning, his Norwegian rival, Roald Amundsen, would all be sailing south. So Scott began planning his own expedition, one that would ensure he would be the first to stand at the southernmost point on Earth. While these trips may have been fueled by ego, they were largely financed by government for scientific discovery and, well, for ego. In fact, in Captain Scott's own words, the main objective of this expedition is to reach the South Pole and to secure for the British Empire the honor of this achievement. However, Chief Scientist Edward Wilson disagreed, saying, No one can say that it will have only been a pole hunt. We want the scientific work to make the bagging of the pole merely an item in the results. So, from a pool of 8,000 applicants, Captain Scott took along an experienced team of 65 officers and scientists, and the Terra Nova expedition set sail on the 15th of June 1910. A year of bad weather and bad luck lay ahead. At one point, at a particularly dire time, a party from the Terra Nova expedition encounters their rival, Amundsen's camp. He graciously offers to help, but they refuse. And upon learning of his rival's offer of assistance, Scott's first reaction was to go have it out with Amundsen. Cooler heads prevailed, and the expedition continued forward. And then, on the 17th of January, 1912, over 18 months after setting sail, Captain Scott and four of his men reach the South Pole, only to find a tent with a black flag flying above it. And inside it, is a letter to the King of Norway, written by Roald Amundsen, who had beaten them by over a month. And adding insult to injury, a separate note asked Captain Scott to please deliver the letter himself. After planting their own flag, Scott's party turned toward home, writing in his journal, now for a desperate struggle to get the news through first. I wonder if we can do it. They couldn't. 
With temperatures dropping rapidly, a missed meeting spot, and the men getting frostbite, their pace slowed dramatically. On the 20th of March, the team was stopped by a blizzard. On the 29th of March, Scott wrote, Every day, we've been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away. But outside the door of the tent, it remains a scene of whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we're getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. R. Scott, last entry. For God's sake, look after our people. It was indeed the final entry in Scott's journal. None of those five men made it out alive. But we know, we always knew what caused these deaths. More than just bad luck and being ill-prepared, it was ego, the desire of men to conquer the natural world. How many men have taken their last breath simply because they wanted so badly to be the first. No, that was no mystery. But miles away, the team's senior geologist, Thomas Griffith Taylor, had been exploring a valley that would later be named for him and had discovered something truly mysterious. Five stories high, and slowly seeping from the tongue of the glacier onto the frozen surface of Lake Bonnie was something strange. A thick, dark red liquid. A blood fall. I'm Chris Hampton. You're listening to Strange Nature. As if it wasn't mysterious enough that here, where temperatures regularly reached 30 degrees below zero, there was still liquid flowing. It looked like it could be blood. Dark red and oozing from the edge of the glacier, staining the surrounding ice and snow. And our geologist, Thomas Griffith Taylor, knew that it wasn't blood. He is a scientist, after all. And yes, it's water. But what gave it this distinct color? And how did it remain liquid enough to continue flowing from beneath a glacier into well below freezing temperatures? Thomas hypothesized that the color must come from a red algae. And he knew that it must be a high salt content that kept it flowing. But then, where was it coming from? It couldn't somehow be glacier melt that would be fresh water. He was part right, part wrong. And it would take over 100 years to completely, we think, unravel this mystery. See, in these particular valleys, the McMurdo Dry Valleys, strangely, 
there isn't much snow other than on the glacier itself. And the wind is so strong that any falling snow is blown clear of the valleys, leaving the ground cracked and bare. So if you look at an aerial view of the area, surrounded by an all-white landscape are long, bare, brown fingers reaching out toward the Ross Sea and the McMurdo Sound. So barren that when Captain Robert Scott first discovered them, he referred to it as the Valley of the Dead. But they're far from that. In fact, this area of Antarctica is of particular interest to scientists because it exists right on the edge of the possibility of life. It might just be the key to understanding how life could exist on Mars and other frozen planets. And if you were to pick up a handful of soil almost anywhere in the world that humans live, you're almost certain to have in your hand a nematode or two, likely more. Nematodes are tiny, unsegmented worms and are amongst the most abundant animals on Earth. There are over 20,000 named species. Who gives all of these things names anyway? Is there a baby name book for nematodes somewhere? And scientists believe only a small proportion of them have even been discovered. But in the Taylor Valley, where blood falls, seeps from its glacier in the Valley of the Dead, there are three, three species of nematode. And they're often freeze-dried by the harsh, frozen desert environment. And then they're blown about by the wind. But these tiny freeze-dried organisms aren't dead. They're in a state of suspended animation. You drop them in water, and they're right back to wriggling little living nematodes. And they may not be the strangest thing there. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you're hearing? Want to create something like this for your own brand? Plugtone Audio is a full podcast production studio. We help outdoor brands make engaging, intentional, and unique audio experiences to tell their brand stories. With full capabilities in-house, Plugtone is a one-stop shop for ideation, production, audio engineering, and distribution of audio storytelling. We are aiming to help tell the stories that aren't being told in our traditional outdoor media. If you want to create something amazing together, Go to PlugtoneAudio.com and reach out. We can't wait to hear from you. Okay, so we've had a lot of time since 1911 to try and figure out what's going on with Blood Falls, why it's red, where the water's coming from, and what causes it to flow sometimes, but not others. Starting in the 60s, scientists began answering these questions and just recently have almost unraveled the entire mystery, as well as a few new ones that have popped up. See, when he first discovered it, Taylor made some great 
educated guesses, like his theory that algae must be the reason for the red color. But he was wrong. Tests of the water proved the color to be due to iron. The glacier over time has scraped along on the underlying rock and picked up iron as it went. And just as iron does when exposed to the elements, our waterfall is rusting. And Taylor didn't have the benefit of being able to fly a helicopter with a massive electromagnetic sensor dangling beneath it over the entire area to map what's under the frozen tundra. Because if he had been able to do that, he might have seen what scientists did in 2015 when they flew their giant sensor around for two weeks and found a massive, salty aquifer beneath the glacier connecting what they previously thought to be isolated lakes. So what they now believe is that somewhere between 1.5 and 4 million years ago, this glacier slid into its current location, trapping beneath it this giant briny lake. And while the average salinity or level of saltiness of the world's oceans is around 3.5%, the salinity in this aquifer is around 40%, making it one of the saltiest bodies of water on Earth. And when the lake was covered by ice, so too were the microbes that lived in it. And now, millions of years later, Beneath 400 meters of ice, with no sunlight and no oxygen, these microbes are still alive. And they're thriving. New mystery. Recently, microbiologist Jill McCookie from Harvard University and now with the University of Tennessee might have cracked the code on how these microbes have continued living for millions of years in one of the most harsh environments on our planet. And here's where we get super nerdy. It took her several years just to get a sample of the briny water 400 meters below the glacier. And tests of that water showed that it's rich in sulfate ions, which many bacteria can use as an energy source, effectively breaking the ions open in a chemical reaction to derive oxygen from them. However, she found no trace of the usual byproducts, sulfides, that would chemically prove the breaking apart of these sulfate ions. So she came up with a hypothesis the bacteria must have some way of recycling their energy source. And it seems she's right. McCookie suggests that they do so through a chemical reaction which reduces sulfate to sulfite rather than the sulfide they expected. The sulfite then reacts with iron in the water and is oxidized back into sulfate, replenishing the original energy supply. And they've been doing this for millions of years in their own ecosystem, completely cut off from the rest of the world. And not all of the mysteries are solved. The flow of blood falls is unpredictable. 
and was only recently caught on camera. We still aren't completely sure how or why the water makes its way up through the fissures in the glacier. Which is just as well, since I'm sure those scientists camped in a place that Captain Scott called the Valley of the Dead need things to ponder in their time away from continuing to eagerly study the microbes in that subglacial aquifer. They hope to reveal the secrets of how life might be supported in other harsh environments. Because within our solar system, there are seven bodies that are believed to harbor sub-cryospheric oceans that could possibly sustain similar life. Besides Mars and Pluto, there's Titan and Enceladus, two of Saturn's moons, and Europa, one of Jupiter's moons, where scientists will someday have a new place to hunt for million-year-old super-survivor microbes. Thanks so much for listening. In your show notes, you'll find a link to our website where we have photos and videos of the strange spectacle that is Blood Falls, Antarctica, and the scientists who are studying it, as well as images from Captain Scott's ill-fated expedition. If you're enjoying Strange Nature, please subscribe, leave us a review, and send your favorites to your friends.